You're listening to Leverage. To Leverage. To Leverage. An ASA Studios production. Hi, everyone. My name is Leanne Clark Shirley. I'm ASA's VP of Programs and Thought Leadership. And welcome to today's episode of Leverage, ASA's podcast on the politics of aging. Today, I am joined by Bob Blancato and Meredith Ponder Whitmire. Bob is the president of Matt's Blancato and Associates. He's a past ASA board chair, current winner of ASA's Hall of Fame award, and among many other roles, is the national coordinator of the Elder Elder Justice Coalition. Meredith is vice president of Mats Blancato and Associates, and she too is a longtime ASA speaker and writer and is the federal policy and media coordinator for the Elder Justice Coalition. Bob and Meredith, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Leanne, for having us. Absolutely. So on today's episode, we're talking about the Elder Justice Reauthorization and Modernization Act of 2021. This was introduced to Congress on August 9th. The House bill, H.R. 4969, uh, was authored by the House Ways and Means Committee Chair Richard Neal, with primary co-sponsorship from Representative Suzanne Bonamici. She's the co-chair of the House Elder Justice Caucus. The Senate version, S-2674, was authored by Senator Ron Wyden, who is the chair of the Finance Committee, uh, with primary co-sponsorship from Senator Bob Casey, who, of course, is the chairman of the Special Committee on Aging. At a very high level, this new bill dedicates funding to elder justice programs. It attempts to close current policy gaps to better protect older adults and people with disabilities. And it also creates some new programs that we'll talk through as well um, to address workforce needs in the long-term care industry, decrease social isolation, and improve linkages to legal services. So there's a lot in here. So Bob and Meredith, um, let's talk through these key provisions. I'm curious, how does this new bill dedicate funding to elder justice programs in a new way or at levels we haven't seen before? Well, it's more of the latter than anything else. The Elder Justice Act has always been about providing dedicated funding for adult protective services. And it took until December of last year before Congress actually provided enough funding to achieve that goal. And so this bill would continue that uh, commitment to dedicated funding for uh, adult protective services because currently adult protective services is funded through a block grant the social services block grant, which Mm -hmm. means it can get lost in the shuffle. There are 13 states that don't provide any money for adult protective services. Wow. That will change as a result of this bill, because when the first batch of money came out before this bill was even even introduced, every state in the country applied for grants uh, to do adult protective services. So that's the first thing it does. And I think the other part that's relatively new, and we'll talk about are the new provisions in the bill. Um, But it is a... Um, comprehensive and coordinated bill, but it has a forward look to it, which which we think is very important. Meredith? Yeah, definitely. Um, I and this is this is going pretty far into backstory, but um, you know the the grants that were given um, to APS programs in December and March um, also came from Chairman Neal and Chairman Wyden. So, you know, they've been champions for a while during this Congress. Yeah, yeah, that's that's important context. Um, what are the specific policy gaps 
that we we have right now that this bill might close? Well, I'll start with one that is an ongoing thing, but I think this bill will improve. A huge policy gap is lack of good data. Okay, uh, we have been suffering, struggling with this problem for for many years, um, and you know, in the world we're in today, data drives dollars. If mm-hmm. you don't have data, you don't have a chance of really competing for dollars. But if you do, um, you can make a case. So one of the things this bill will do is strengthen a data collection system that was started in the previous Elder Justice Act, and will allow for more people to do reporting, uh, for more people to help in detection that can then get, can get reported. Um, so that to me is one of the more important policy gaps. The other policy gap that I think it addresses from the existing law is strengthening the training capacity of the long-term care ombudsman program. That's a program that's critically important, especially now with all the challenges in nursing homes that was exacerbated by COVID-19. Right. They're, they're needed on the ground more than ever before. And then when you introduce the social isolation language, uh, the increased staffing language on nursing homes and the legal medical partnerships, those are new entities aimed at achieving other, closing other gaps that exist right now. Got it. And do you have a sense of where uh, the implementation of this would live? Would this be the administration for community living? Right. It would be the administration for almost exclusively, frankly, mm-hmm. uh, because when the first Elder Justice Act came out, the first dedicated home for adult protective services was established in ACL a number of years ago. The, uh, the uh, APS Resource Center is located in ACL. Uh, the Long-Term Care Ombudsman Resource Center is located in ACL. The Long-Term Care Ombudsman is actually authorized by the Older Americans Act, which is run by ACL. So yeah, they will be front and center in this. And I will tell you, uh, we have been very pleased with their response to the funding that was provided last year. Uh, They did very quick work of getting the money out and putting the uh, states uh, to come in and apply. And this will just simply give them more opportunities to impact. And the social isolation thing, let me just add to that. Yeah. That addresses the, that's the aging network getting involved in in programs to um, address this huge growing problem, which is connected to elder abuse, which is one of the things I think is very important in this bill is the fact that they connect social isolation as a, you know, potentially contributing factor. To yeah. I think that was, that may have come as a, a little bit of a happy surprise to many of us in aging um, viewing social isolation, not only as sort of a health outcome to be prevent prevented, but what you're saying is elder abuse and maltreatment is actually um What's the relation? Does well, one of the fastest growing forms of elder abuse is self-neglect. Mm-hmm. Okay, self-neglect is an outgrowth of isolation and loneliness. Um, and you know, when you start at acknowledging this uh, and provide funding for um, technical assistance and referral centers to address social isolation among seniors and people with disabilities, you're at least at making an effort to try to combat that problem. Yeah, Meredith, am I missing something there? I would also add that folks who are socially isolated are more likely to be victims of things like financial exploitation or um, abuse from, you know, potential uh, paid caregivers or family caregivers. You know, if you don't have folks uh, looking out for older adults, then it is more likely that they will become victims. Yeah. So it's sort of a... a, a a two-way relationship, social isolation increases your risk for experiencing abuse, but solving social isolation might prevent 
self-neglect down the road. Right. Exactly. And, it, you know, it's all about vulnerability, frankly. Yeah. I mean, you know, elder abuse in the simplest form is if you establish trust with an older adult and you violate that trust in some form or another, that creates elder abuse. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, so if you neglect, I mean, a lot of self-neglect victims previously were neglected. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then there was then somebody abandoned them completely and said, you're on your own. So there's a lot of connect relationships, but this bill is very smart in how it constructs its funding to address different components of elder abuse. And you mentioned that, that the structure of that funding is to uh, send dollars throughout the aging network. Is that right? Right. It's, uh, particularly for the social isolation thing. But, uh, you know, since since the word infrastructure is the hot word these <laughs> days, um, this bill actually says we need an infrastructure for elder justice. Mm-hmm. And it does it. Frankly, in our judgment, it, com- it represents the coordinated approach that you need uh, at the state level, at the nursing home level, staffing in nursing homes, uh, isolation. Um, this is what how you build infrastructure. You have to have a structure, system. Um, and it's there. It just was never completely recognized and put in a coordinated way like this bill does. And, you know, we're grateful for how Chairman Neal and Chairman Wyden put this bill together. Yeah. Well, let's talk about what had been going on. Um, I mean, talking, you know, Kathy Greenlee, of course, was leading ACL when a lot of elder justice momentum got going. Uh, But what's been happening, you know, we often talked about it being an unfunded mandate um, going back in time. And it seems like this bill is an attempt to you know, fix that and and put some real funding behind it. But talk about what's been going on in D.C. in the background that led up to uh, this bill being introduced on the 9th of August. Well, let's just say that Meredith and I have had a lot of hours of put <laughs> into this uh, that we've enjoyed every minute of it because we saw things moving forward. OK, but I think the way to understand this better is to go back to December and back to March when the uh, same two chairmen, along with you know, the leadership of the House and the Senate, frankly, agreed to allow $400 million to be put into the Elder Justice Act, largest commitment of funding it ever had. Meredith has this great chart we use in presentations, which shows for the first 11 years of the Elder Justice Act history, it got $70 million in funding. In four months, it got $400 million in funding. Now, wow. <laughs> some, of this, some of this, like many other federal programs, is pandemic related, Okay. There were stories being out there about scams being perpetrated, including vaccine scams, which really appalled members of oh, Congress. Yeah. Their officers would call us and say, what are we doing about this? And, you know, it was all about being prepared to offer, you know, an alternative. So to answer the question more clearly, the funding is only one part of it. You need to actually reauthorize the existing law. It technically expired a number of years ago, but it was allowed to continue as many laws are because it was getting funding. What this bill does, it's a new lease on life for the original purposes of the Elder Justice Act combined with new initiatives. So the money actually preceded the reauthorization, which is great. Now our job is to keep the money flowing. Meredith, did you have something to add? Uh, just that, you know, that that is going to be the tough part, um, keeping the money flowing, uh, not to not to be a downer on the conversation. But, you know, this is only the first step. Um, you know, we have to make sure that advocacy continues in order to uh, make sure that authorized money becomes appropriated money. Mm-hmm. 
let's talk a little bit about that. So, so what, what's next for this act? What, what do we know? You know, what steps will this follow? And then I wonder if you can sort of speculate on, you know, the, the legs that this has or doesn't have. Well, let's start with the positives, I think, which are the fact that it's authored by Chairman Neal and Chairman Wyden makes it very significant. Okay, because the Ways and Means Committee and the Finance Committee have enormous power. All right. Now, it is their intention, at least I know on the House side, to try to get this into that large budget reconciliation bill that you were hearing all about, uh, that the process began last night with the Senate wrapping up at four o'clock in the morning with the framework for that bill. And now the pieces have to be put together. Once we see that that they're going to try to push this forward into the reconciliation bill, then we have to unleash the strongest degree of advocacy possible. And, you know, ASA is a member of the Elder Justice Coalition. They, they, they have a great role to play here because of the, uh, the very fact of the diversified membership that you have of voices that could be really enhancing the advocacy process for this issue. And the question will be um, how much other competitions is there going to be for to fit inside a $3.5 trillion package? Mm-hmm. That money sounds enormous until you start calculating it down to, okay, this piece, this piece, this piece. Right. However, I think the way you pitch this and we, what we try to do is you view this in the context of both an investment and prevention. Okay. Those are two buzzwords that seem to resonate well as things go forward. And so, you know, we have reason to be optimistic um, because the, the way the money came out so quickly uh, gave us hope that, you know, there's a recognition now what elder justice is a legitimate issue that needs to be addressed. Meredith? Yeah, and um, I would add that as far as advocacy is concerned, you know, it, it as Bob said, it really helps that, you know, the, the chairman of these powerful committees are fully in support of all of this. Um, I think at this point, um, you know, it's really about convincing uh, the House and Senate leadership that this is an important thing to keep. Um, you know, it, it goes down, of course, to the individual members of Congress, you know, House and Senate, but ultimately this is going to be a leadership issue, I think. Right. And Leanne, I want to add one thing too that I think is important for context, mm-hmm. which is elder justice has always been a bipartisan issue. Yeah, it seems it would be. You know, and we've had some of the strangest bedfellows ever imaginable in the lead role for the Elder Justice Act. At one point we had Senator Hatch as the sponsor in the Senate and Congressman Rahm Emanuel as the House sponsor, okay? (laughs) So, you know, you know that that represents. And the other part I think that's, you know, that's important is that, um, you know, when you localize and humanize this issue, one of our strategies in advocacy, when we do visits, uh, when we used to do visits and still maintain contact with offices, we bring up a little packet that has a summary of the law, okay? couple other things. And then we have the closest news clip about an elder abuse case in that member of Congress's district or state. Mm. That's what turns them. That's what turns their head. Okay. You know, and, and there are every day we get a, we get a Google feed every day that talks about horrendous cases that, you know, and, and things that like, for example, when veterans are involved, you know, elderly veterans who get victimized by sweetheart scams, um, you know, those things really do resonate. People begin to say, okay, what am I going to do about this whole thing? So, That's what we try to do. We try to put the human face on this issue as much as we can, local face on this issue as much as we can. And it's not that hard. Yeah, sure. Because there's so many cases going on. Sadly. <laughs> yeah. Um, are there signals that this will have bipartisan support? 
Um, yeah, I believe so. I think it's going to take a little more time. These bills were not introduced necessarily in a bipartisan way. Um, however, you know, magic things can happen sometimes on certain issues. The problem is if it stays with the budget reconciliation bill, it will not be bipartisan mm-hmm. because the whole nature of reconciliation is partisan. Sure. Okay. That's true. Okay. Um, and so, you know, that's unfortunate, but you know, we've had this problem, uh, before. I mean, the only reason the elder justice act even exists is because it was attached to a moving vehicle, which turned out to be the affordable care act, which got no Republican votes either. True. So unfortunately, you know, we have to work past that, um, that fact. I mean, it, if, if this is what gets you to the dance, then so be it. Um, but then from there, you try to go to work on the funding. And I would say this much, the very fact that the four leaders of Congress at the time in December, and then again in March, signed off on supporting funding for elder justice was a good sign, as Meredith said, they're, they're going to be, they're going to be important to this whole thing. Yeah. Meredith, you mentioned, you know, this is step one, uh, getting the dollars. And then next is driving the appropriation of them and the implementation. I'm curious, um, tell us about the Elder Justice Coalition's role in this and what what your priorities are and what what you think the most important um, implementation strategies might be. So I think that, you know, our priorities are definitely um, along the social isolation front, um, as was mentioned. Um, We're very interested in the APS and long-term care ombudsman, but also um, the new staffing provisions. And I know Bob had wanted to talk about those, so I can reserve some time for that. But, um, you know, there's, there's a lot in here that, you know, I think is going to be really key. And I know the staffing provisions would be implemented through CMS. So um, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Ah. Um, So it would be, you know, a a nice way to try to bring ACL and CMS together um, on this issue. I mean, CMS has had primary responsibility for implementing things that fall in the nursing home jurisdiction, but um, with the long-term care ombudsman program, that's kind of where you get the oversight into this. Got it. Yeah, Bob, and, what about those provisions? Well, you know, you figure that um, three quarters of states reported concerns about reductions in direct care workforce as a result of the pandemic. So you had a situation that was bad before the pandemic, it's been worsened since the pandemic, combined with the fact that um, retaining um, and recruiting staff has been difficult. Sure. So this bill basically says, okay, let's go, that's issue number one. There's got to be adequate staffing in our nursing homes for any hope of quality of care, okay? And the fact that they they took an existing part of the Elder Justice Act and and kept it and strengthened it um, is is a signal that they see that as an important thing. I would also point out that on the Senate side, there's another bill that just got dropped uh, yesterday, another major nursing home reform bill that Senator Wyden is, is, is leading around quality issues like infection control, things of that nature. Um, you know, to me, I think what you're gonna see um, Depending on, again, how a larger picture, the uh, home and community-based care piece of the budget reconciliation bill, how that plays out, this could all merge together, actually. Mm-hmm. There are components that could allow this to factor into that larger uh, package, even though the president uh, in his proposal didn't necessarily connect them. But I would point out, and we're very proud of the fact that the Biden-Harris campaign supported a full reauthorization of the Elder Justice Act. Mm-hmm. So it's just a matter of, of sort of connecting, communicating and seeing where the, the synergies can be. 
But there's plenty of connection between these two things and that and that initiative. So we're hoping that can play itself out. Yeah, and I would add to that, you know, I think the Elder Justice Coalition is really unique in that we have so many different players from across the spectrum. Um, we have residents' rights groups. We have, you know, uh, provider groups. We have advocacy groups in general. Um, and, you know, it's it's fantastic to see all of these folks coming together to advocate for, you know, the rights of older adults. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's something that is not often seen in this space. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of disagreement sometimes about what is the best way to do that. But I, we're really proud of, you know, the fact that we've brought these folks together and that, you know, the, the voices have become unified on this issue. And, you know, Leanne, I want to add one thing that's unique to ASA, I think, that where they could play a role in this whole yeah, thing. Yeah, please. There is an element of ageism in this issue, mm-hmm. okay? When you consider that in 1974, the Child Abuse Prevention Act was passed and funded in the mid 80s, Family Violence Action was, was Family Violence Prevention Act was passed. 1992, Violence Against Women Act was passed. It took until 2010 for an Elder Justice Act to be passed because they just never made a connection. Even though we know there's an intergenerational cycle of abuse that occurs in this country, elder abuse has been as a last frontier, if you will, from a mm-hmm. policy standpoint. So connecting that issue, um, the need to address this issue to make up for some lost time, uh, and this bill can do it. Maybe putting that lens and ASA is in a unique position to do that. Yeah, I agree. This this really makes this a a a, a family issue from childhood through older adulthood. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. Um, well, what can ASA members uh, that are listening? What can they do? Um, how can our partners get involved? What is maybe one takeaway that you want everyone listening to know or do? Well, I would tell everybody to go to our website, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and and just follow the bouncing ball. It, it, all those it, updates that we provide, uh, take action steps, things that people can actually do themselves. Um, we, you know, we, we do our best to uh, keep people apprised of things as, as they come up and where they're needed to jump in. Um, and, you know, I think the other thing is that it's always good for um, members to understand who their, congr- who their senator and Congress people are. And that's an overlooked thing that we, we try to stress that point a lot because if your member of Congress is sitting on a committee that's relevant to this whole thing and you weigh in, that's going to help a lot. But Meredith is our policy and advocacy uh, guru, so I'll let her finish that part. Yeah, I would definitely agree. Please sign up for um, our news updates. Um, you know, that's that is our main method of communication with our uh, members and supporters. And you know, that's that is where the action steps come in. Um, you know, as Bob said, not only know who your members of Congress are, but um, you know the committees they serve on. Uh, the you know. Are they members of relevant caucuses like the Elder Justice Caucus or are they members of, um, you know, there's the I believe it's the aging and work, uh, the aging and families uh, work group. Uh, mm-hmm. There's, you know, there's a there's a number of different places where folks might be interested that they just haven't connected the dots yet. So it's our job to connect the dots for them. Yeah. And that website is elderjusticecoalition.com. We'll link to it as well. Thank you. Yeah. Um, any parting words before we close? 
Meredith, you go first this time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would I would also note, um, you know, there's there are some other provisions in this bill we didn't get a chance to discuss. Um, there's things like medical legal partnerships, which are kind of a new concept in the elder justice sphere. But, um, you know, I, those are very important as well. Uh, legal services hotlines, um, basically ways that, you know, elder you know, elders in the community and also um, those who are caring for them um, can make sure that they are uh, enabling older adults to access services. Um, that's what those partnerships are designed to do. Mm-hmm. So that's important. Um, you know, we encourage you to check out the section by section of the bill, um, you know, see what else is in there that you might personally be interested in to um, bring those issues to your members of Congress. Yeah, that's great. And we'll add links to that as well. Yes. Let me, let me also add that there's another very important provision that has been long overdue, and that is the bill's provision for elder justice grants to Indian tribes and tribal organizations. That's historic. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I want to commend organizations like the Association of Indigenous People that my friend Bill Benson and Dave Baldridge are involved. They did a lot of work in that space. Um, and even the Adult Protective Service Association was, was working to have Indian tribes recognized. You know, their situations are unique. They need unique services. Uh, this bill would do that. So basically, what I think the closing quote I have is that, look, these opportunities don't come around every day. Mm-hmm. Okay, we've got a unique opportunity. Momentum is in our favor on elder justice uh, with the, what, the activities in December and in March. And now, you know, we need to cl- we need to really move that process forward. And uh, the next, uh, I would say the next uh, six weeks are going to be um, pivotal. Because even though Congress technically went home, um, the the provisions to fill in that $3.5 trillion bill are going to be worked on by staff throughout August and into, into September. So we just have to stay in the game. We plan to stay in the game. You know, there's an old saying about basketball. If you hang around the basket long enough, you'll score. You know, <laughs> so we plan to hang around the basket a lot. Yeah. Excellent. Well, uh, keep us posted here at ASA and we'll keep our members posted. Thank you both so much for joining us on this episode of Leverage. Nice to talk with you. Yeah, thank you for having us. Yeah, and to the folks listening, ASA is putting on a Generations Forum the last week of September that is all about from ageism to age inclusion. And Meredith, we may be hearing from you um, at that forum on tips for local advocacy. Maybe we can talk about this issue then. Yes, definitely. All right. Thanks everyone for listening.